invite you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. We are continuing our series in this last book of the Bible, coming to verse, verses 7 to 13. I want to uh, begin with a story. Uh, I don't know about all of you, but, but I quite like libraries. I, like, I, l- I love books, I love reading, I love learning and studying, and, uh, and libraries are a good place for people who are like that. And uh, this morning I want to share a story of uh, a bit of an adventure that I had that began in a library. Now, uh, it didn't involve any reading or studying. I was in high school. I went to high school uh, in Niagara-on-the-Lake, Ontario, at a school called Eden Christian College. Our library uh, there had two floors. The upper floor uh, kind of surrounded, it was like a balcony, if you will, surrounding uh, an opening down into the main level of the library. One particular day, I was upstairs in the library. Uh, I don't recall whether I was studying. Uh, That's possible, but not likely. But I was in the library, and I looked, and there was, in the wall, there was a door there. It was kind of a three-quarter door. It was kind of a a utility door. I'd never seen it opened. Um, It's not a door that that I had ever been through, really had no clue what was on the other side of it. But that particular day when I looked at this door, I noticed stuck in the door handle a key that had been left there. And so as a high school student, uh, I took the key and I brought it right to the librarian. No, I didn't. I took that key and put it in my pocket, and I waited for an opportune time to discover what was on the other side of the door. I told a friend or two, and uh, over the next couple of days, every opportunity I had, I'd go there and, and wait for a moment when there was no one else around, no one who would see us, and I, I stuck the key in and turned it, it opened, and we went in the door. What we discovered was amazing. Eden was in this old building, and that door opened up into an attic that covered virtually the whole school. And it wasn't just rafters, and it wasn't just one big room, but it, was, it, was, it had farm board, like it was a floored place, mostly floored. I almost went through the roof once in one spot. And, and all kinds of rooms and different levels. And, and we began exploring, and we'd sneak there every day at lunch, and, and slowly that gang of, of friends who became aware of this grew and grew until one day I remember uh, we were playing tag or something and running through the attic and I came around the corner into the area where the door was and standing there before me quietly in the dark was the vice principal Vic Lowen with his hand out. (laughs) Somehow he knew and I very sheepishly reached into my pocket and took out the key, laid it in his hand and we all exited through that door never to return back into that wonderful place. This morning, we come to the sixth letter in the Revelation. A letter that speaks of one who holds the key. The one who opens the door. Over the last five weeks, we have walked through the first five of seven letters in the Revelation. Uh, The Revelation, that's the title of the book, literally means unveiling. In these pages, Jesus uh, pulls back the curtain. He lifts off the cover so that we can see what is really real, so that we can see what is true. And what we discover through the pages of the Revelation is that there is more going on than we can perceive with our physical eyes, that things are not 
as they seem, certainly not just as they seem. The revelation helps us to see the present in light of the unseen realities of the future. And it helps us to see the present in light of the unseen realities of the present. The letters are messages. Messages from the exalted and glorified Christ to churches, to the churches. The author, John, one of Jesus' twelve disciples, now an old man in his mid-80s, has been exiled to the island of Patmos, about 40 miles off the coast of modern-day Turkey in the Aegean Sea, this volcanic lump of rock where he has been uh, exiled by Rome because of his faith in Jesus, because of the proclamation of the hope of the gospel. And we read that on the Lord's Day, he is in the Spirit, he is worshiping on the Lord's Day, and suddenly he hears behind him a loud voice, a voice like a trumpet, and he turns to see the voice, and there before him he sees the glorified and exalted Jesus. We read the vision of, of Jesus about John's vision in the last part of Revelation 1. Jesus commissions John, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. Seven churches that are spread out throughout the province of Asia. Seven churches that are on the ancient Roman postal route. We have looked at five of those messages. The first to the church in Ephesus, Jesus called them to love again. Love like you did at first. To the church in Smyrna, a church that had already suffered and was about to suffer more, Jesus' words of encouragement to them are, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Be faithful, even to the point of death. To the church of Pergamum, a church that has, had carelessly allowed false teaching to creep in, who had lost some of their grip on the truth, Jesus called them back to the truth, to care for the truth, to pursue the truth, to protect it. To the church in Thyatira, a church that had not only allowed false teaching into their midst, but actually a false teacher, a false teacher who was proclaiming to them that sin was in fact righteousness. They were losing their way, being led astray, and Jesus calls them to holiness. Last week we looked at the church, the letter to the church of Sardis, and Jesus' words to them were, wake up, this church had become spiritually complacent. Jesus called them to repent, to remember. Remember what you have heard. Remember what you have received, the gospel and spirit. This morning we come to the sixth letter, sixth of seven, the letter to the church in Philadelphia, a letter which, like the letter to the church in Smyrna, has no word of correction, no word of rebuke, just encouragement. I invite you to follow along as I read Revelation 3, verse 7 to 13. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. 
The one, who is victor- the one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I want to do three things with you this morning. Three things we're going to consider. First, a bit about the city of Philadelphia. Second, we're going to look at what Jesus sees. And then thirdly, we will look at what Jesus does. So first, the city of Philadelphia. Of the seven churches, or the seven cities with churches in them which receive messages from Jesus, the church in Philadelphia, the city of Philadelphia, was easily the youngest, the the most recently uh, established of them all. It was named after uh, a Pergamum king, uh, King Atlas II, now, Atlas had an older brother, Eumenes, who had been king. And uh, Rome, as Rome was on their rise to power, they were encouraging Atlas to rebel against his brother, to take the, the, the throne from his brother, but Atlas refused to. He remained, despite all of Rome's whining and dining of him, all their encouragement, Atlas remained true to his brother, loyal to his brother, refused to rebel against his brother and take the, the throne from him. And so Atlas received the nickname... Philadelphus, from which we get Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Atlas would loved his brother. He would not rebel against him. And so that's where Philadelphia got its name. The city was located near an active volcanic zone, in fact, uh, straddling a volcanic fault line. And so that proved to be uh, both a blessing and a curse. Uh, on the positive side, it, it was richly fertile. The volcanic uh, soil was uh, incredibly fertile, and so this area of the kingdom uh, really flourished in agriculture. They were famous for their vineyards, for grapes, and they uh, were quite prosperous. That is, until the emperor Domitian uh, ordered throughout the empire that, that grape production be cut in half, challenging farmers to grow wheat because he needed more wheat to feed his armies. So that seriously hurt Philadelphia and turned them against him. Obviously, the negative part of living on a volcanic uh, fault line is that there are, there are uh, some earthquakes. You may recall last week, uh, the church in Sardis experienced an earthquake in AD 17 that destroyed the city. Well, that same earthquake uh, utterly wiped out Philadelphia as Philadelphia was right on it. And while both cities, with the help of the emperor, were, uh, were rebuilt, the city in Philadelphia struggled more because not only did they experience that massive earthquake, but they continued for years to experience aftershocks and other earthquakes. In fact, many people uh, of this city didn't live in the city. They chose to live outside of the city because of all, the, uh, the, all of the earthquakes. And uh, those who did live in the city were constantly fleeing. Every time the ground began to move, they would run out of the city and return and run and back and run. It was the regular part of life in Philadelphia. That will become a significant factor as we move forward in the letter. So let's let's turn from the city of Philadelphia to the second thing we wanted to do, and that was look at what Jesus sees. You remember John in, his, in chapter 1, John on the Lord's day is worshiping and he hears a voice behind him, like a voice like a loud trumpet, and he turns to see the voice and there he sees Jesus. And if you were with us, you may recall where was Jesus when John saw him. 
Jesus, the exalted and glorified Christ, was walking among seven golden lampstands. The golden lampstands, John tells us, are the seven churches. Jesus is in the middle of the churches. He is not distant. He is not far away. He was right there with his people, right in the middle of the churches. From that place, Jesus sees what's going on. He sees their situation. He he knows what is true about them. He knows all that they are enduring. And in verse 8, in this text, Jesus says to the church in Philadelphia, I know your deeds. He has said that to each of the churches that he sees them. He sees what's going on, what they're facing. For four of the five churches, he has called them to repent because not all has been well. But to the church in Smyrna and here, no word of correction, but he sees. I know your deeds. We read on in verse 8. I know you have little strength. Now, we, we read that, and certainly at first glance we think, well, that's, that's not good. I know you have little strength. Who, who wants to, to be the one who is described as the, the one with little strength? I mean, as a father of three little boys, uh, in, in all the wrestling and all that happened growing up, and even now as they are uh, older, Yet, uh, yet have I to experience the one who comes out of the bottom of some wrestling match to stand up and go, Woo! I'm the weakest! Jesus says, I know that you have little strength. I know that you have little strength. How is that a good thing? But here's what we need to remember. Here's what we need to grasp. The Christian life is not a life lived by our own strength. The psalmist, listen to the psalmist. If the Lord had not been on our side when people attacked us, they would have swallowed us alive. Our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be shaken. Regularly as you make your way through the prayers of the Psalms, we encounter this, that our strength is not in us, it is God. Our security comes from God. If, if the Lord had not been with us, we would have been swallowed up. In Zechariah 4.6, we read, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Last Sunday, when we were looking at the letter to the church in Sardis, we recognize that the church in Sardis looked good. From the outside, it was a large church, an active church. It it seemed to be a vibrant church. From the outside, everyone would have thought things were great in Sardis, and yet Jesus said to them, you have a reputation for being alive, but in truth, you are dead. Remember, he said, what you have heard and what you've received. What had they heard? They'd heard the gospel. What had they received? They'd received the spirit of the living God. Life of discipleship, life with Jesus is not a life we live by our own strength. Jesus said, I quoted this last week, He said, apart from me you can do nothing. Not apart from me you can do less. Not not apart from me you'll do it but it's harder. No, apart from me you can do nothing. The Christian life is a life where we lean into the strength of Jesus. Paul, pleading with Jesus... Jesus, to remove the thorn in his flesh, we don't know what that was, but but Jesus' words to Paul were what? My grace is sufficient for you, 
For my power is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul can declare these words, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The life we are called into, the life Christ has redeemed us into, is not a life that you or I or the Philadelphians or anyone else can live by our own strength, by our own might, by our own power, by our own... No, we lean into the Spirit of God who indwells in us. It is about God's power made full in our weakness. Jesus says, I know your deeds. I know that you have little strength. That's not a word to discourage It's just a word of observation. It's a word about what is true. It's a word about reality. Jesus goes on and he says, Yet, I know you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Those are two ways of essentially saying the same thing. First, to keep the word of Christ simply means they have been obedient Again, by the power of God's Spirit in them, they have learned to walk in obedience to Him, in submission to Christ. They no longer live, but Christ lives in them. They have been faithful to His Word. And, and he says, second, they have not denied His name. That is, they have, they have not lived in a way that is inconsistent with who Jesus is and what it means to be Jesus's. That doesn't mean they haven't sinned. It doesn't mean sinless perfection. It means when they sin, they confess, they repent, they run to Jesus. They have lived in a way that is consistent with who Jesus is. Again, by the power of the Spirit in light of the Gospel. P.E. Hughes writes this, Human weakness is no hindrance to the power of God. On the contrary, by unmistakable contrast, it provides the setting for the manifestation and the magnification of God's power. Let me read that to you again. Human weakness is no hindrance to the power of God. On the contrary, by unmistakable contrast, it provides the setting for the manifestation and the magnification of God's power. Do you feel weak? Are we those who have little strength? Be encouraged. Because it's about God's power at work in us. The Philadelphians had little strength. They were certainly not the most impressive of these churches. And yet Jesus has only words of commendation to them, words of affirmation. I know your deeds. I know you have little strength, yet you have remained faithful to me. You have not denied my name. Not only have they been faithful, but they have been faithful under pressure. They have been faithful in the face of opposition. Listen to verse 10. Verse 10 we read, Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. Sorry, I'm reading the wrong. I'm getting ahead of myself. They've endured patiently. They've kept his word. They've not denied his name. They've done so in difficult circumstances. Verse 9, sorry, I want to direct you to. That's where we see a little bit of what they are facing. Verse 9, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. You may recognize that language, synagogue of Satan. We encountered it earlier in the letter to the church in Smyrna. 
There, too, Jesus spoke of the synagogue of Satan. What, what's going on? Well, quite evidently here in the city of Philadelphia, there are uh, Jewish people, who, some who have come to faith in Christ, but some who have not. And, and those, the Jewish population that has not come to Christ in this city are so fierce in their opposition to the church, to those who are worshiping Jesus as God. See, for the Jews, they believe there's only one God, Yahweh. And certainly, there is only one God, but in Christ we see that, that God has revealed Himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the Jews in Philadelphia are so fierce in their opposition to those who worship Jesus that they are making life difficult for Christians. They utterly reject the claim that Jesus is God in the flesh. Of course, that is precisely who Jesus is. In fact, verse 7 in our text identifies Jesus you look at verse 7 as the Holy One, the true one. Uh, literally, most English translations read something like this. Uh, these are the words of Him who is holy and true. But, but what we need to understand here, the description, it's not so much a description about saying Jesus is holy and true, though certainly that is, that is the case. But, but a most, a more literal translation of the original there says, Jesus is the Holy One, the true one. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament, the, the, the title, the Holy One, is regularly attributed to Yahweh, to God. Jesus is the Holy One, the Holy One in flesh, God in the flesh, God incarnate. He is the one that is to be worshipped. And so those Jews who oppose the Christians because they're worshiping Jesus are in fact, though they think that they are the people of God, they are in fact fighting against God. They think that they are aligned with God, but they are in fact aligned with Satan, the enemy of God, until they surrender to Jesus, until they recognize that in Jesus, Yahweh has come in fleshed, present among them. They stand in opposition to God. They stand in opposition to his true people. They stand in opposition to the advance of his kingdom. Now, whatever, whatever else this opposition of the Jews against the Christians in Philadelphia entailed, one thing we know is that it would have included exclusion from the synagogue, excommunication, doors slammed shut in their faces, loss of relationships with community, with family even, written off as those outside of God's kingdom, written off as those excluded from the people of God. And yet, well, at this point, let's turn our attention from what Jesus sees to what Jesus does. In verse 7, we, we read, these are the words of Him who is holy and true, the Holy One, the true One, who holds the key of David, what he opens, no one can shut. What he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds, says Jesus. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. Here, Jesus is described as the one who holds the key of David. What does that mean? What's the key of David? I noted earlier on in this series, I think in week two, that the book of Revelation, uh, which is comprised of 404 verses, has over 500 direct or indirect allusions to other scriptures. We encounter one of those here. In the book of Isaiah 22, we read these words. In that day, I will summon my servant Eliakim, son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your robe and fasten your sash around him and hand him your authority over to, hand over to him, your authority 
over to him. He will be a father to those who live in Jerusalem and to the people of Judah. I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. It's helpful to understand the context of what's going on there. Well, that comes in the context of a a word of judgment on the palace administrator in Israel, a man by the name of Shebna. He is being judged, and he is being replaced. And these words are spoken of Eliakim, who will be his replacement, who will be the new steward of the of of the kingdom, the new steward of the palace, who will have the, king, uh, the king's key, who will have authority within the kingdom. So with that in mind, what we need to understand is Eliakim replaces Shibna as, as, as the one with authority, the one with the key. Jesus is like Eliakim. In fact, Jesus is the better Eliakim. Jesus is the, the new administrator, the, the one with the key, the one with authority. In fact, not, not only authority over the kingdom, Jesus himself is the great king. And Jesus has the key. And what he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. Jesus has the key. Jesus has all authority in the kingdom. To this small, weak, oppressed church, excluded, expelled from the synagogue, doors slammed in their shut, shut in their faces, Jesus says, I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut, and I have the key. How are we to understand this open door? What exactly is Jesus referring to when he says, I have placed before you an open door? As is often the case in the Revelation, I would suggest there are multiple references that that a number of different ideas all coalesce together and all stand as true. First, the open door that Jesus has placed before the believers in Philadelphia is the door of salvation. That through Jesus, by his death and his resurrection, Jesus has opened the door to all who will come to him to be saved. That through faith in Jesus, we are brought into relationship with God. Through faith in Jesus, we are forgiven for all our sin. All of it, purified, washed, cleansed, declared holy, clothed with the perfection of Jesus. Jesus' death and resurrection has opened a door of salvation. The author of Hebrews says, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. What we need to understand is that for God's people, both with the tabernacle and later with the temple, the construction of those those buildings, that tent, that building, is significant. There were two main sections, the, the holy place, where priests would go in daily, and on the one side there would be the, the, the table of the bread of the presence, on the other side the seven uh, the lampstands, seven candles burning all the time, and in front of them, in front of a curtain, would be the, the altar of incense. Beyond that curtain was the, the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, the place where the Ark of the Covenant rested with the Ten Commandments, with, with the, the the mercy seat on it, the, the cherubim on it. It was thought to be the very place of God's presence among His people. And only the high priest, and only once a year would the high priest go into the most holy place, to the place where God was present, burning incense so that he would not see, he would not gaze upon God. Because to look upon God and in His perfection, in His holiness, in His righteousness, we would be struck dead. In fact, 
Tradition says that the high priest, at one point, they began to tie a rope around one of their ankles so that in case they dropped dead in the Holy of Holies, they could drag their dead body out because no one else dared go into the presence of God. Do you recognize the significance that when Jesus died, that curtain that separated us, that curtain that kept us safe from the holy presence of God is torn in two from top to bottom by the hands of God, torn in two. The way is open through Jesus so that we, sinful, fallen, weak men and women, young and old, that we can enter into the very presence of God with confidence, the author of Hebrews says. See, I have placed an open door before you, Jesus says. Through my life and death, the way is open for fellowship, for intimacy with God. Second, the open door is the open door of the eschatological kingdom, the end time kingdom, the new Jerusalem, the new city that we will encounter at the end of the book of Revelation. Jesus says, see, I have placed before you an open door. Verse 10, we read this, because they will suffer, the believers here will suffer, yet, yet we read this, since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. That verse doesn't mean that they will not suffer. It, it does not mean when, Jesus, it, when it says we'll protect them from, it's not, it's not so much that it will remove them from, but we'll protect them through. He'll protect them from negative impacts of the trial that's coming. Yes, they will suffer. Yes, in this world they will face rejection and exclusion. They may have doors slammed in their faces, but Jesus promises that he will keep them from harm. Jesus, in chapter 1 of the Revelation, Jesus holds the keys of death and Hades. Here, Jesus holds the, king, the key of David, the key of the kingdom. Jesus is the one with all authority. Death will not get the last word. Jesus has the key of death. And glory awaits. The new Jerusalem will come. Jesus has opened the door. And He's promising His people, despite their weakness, despite what they may have to endure, that that door is open before them, that their entrance into His glorious kingdom in all its fullness is secure. And note this, because of the security of the kingdom, the, no, no running out, no leaving and coming back. I'll come back, back to that in a moment. Third, Third, the open door is the, the open door of opportunity. Opportunity for gospel ministry. Opportunity to proclaim the good news of life and hope and joy that can be found in Jesus. Paul regularly speaks this way throughout his letters. In 1 Corinthians, we read, a great door for effective work has opened to me. In 2 Corinthians, when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, I found that the Lord had opened a door for me. In Colossians 4, and pray for us too that God may open a door for our message. An open door of opportunity. And it's also worth noting that the city of Philadelphia was an outpost city originally founded with one overriding purpose uh, for the, the, 
it was to be a base from which to launch a campaign for the Hellenization of the world. That is, Hellenization is a term given to, uh, to the spread of, of all things Greek, to spread the spread of Greek language, the Greek culture, Greek worldview, the Greek way of life. Sir William Ramsey writes this, Philadelphia was a missionary city from the beginning. A missionary city, of course, speaking of a missionary of, of all things Greek. But here Jesus speaks of an open door that he has placed before these believers. An open door for a campaign, not of Hellenization, but a proclamation, a campaign for, for the gospel. The spread of the good news. Daryl Johnson writes this, Philadelphia was the ideal of the seven cities for such a base. It was located on one of the greatest highways in the world, the highway that led from Europe to the east. It was one of the most strategic cities of the ancient world. Though they are small, though they are weak, though they have little strength, Jesus has called them, he has commissioned them, he has sent them. He has placed before them an open door of opportunity to proclaim the hope of the gospel. And in Him, they can embrace that call and lean into it because they are utterly secure. That same open door stands before us today. An open door of opportunity to proclaim the hope of the gospel. And I just want us to think for a moment. Has this ever been more evident than right now at this time in history? With COVID-19 spreading, all that has transpired over these months, has the reality not been exposed that despite all the wealth of the world, despite technology and scientific progress, that we are not invincible? The world has been ravaged by this. We don't know how to stop it. I mean, we're sitting far apart in hopes that that will help. And certainly it slows things down, but But with COVID, we've seen all kinds of anxiety and worry. People have been confronted with the reality of mortality and, and the fact that we are not in control. And so let me ask you, is there not an open door before us to proclaim the hope and the security and the confidence that we can have in Jesus, come what may? And we can look at the events of this last couple of weeks with the senseless killing of George Floyd that have fueled protests, some legitimately crying out against racism and, and the abuse of power and others using it as an excuse for violence and mayhem. Our world is burning. And yet we, we know the one who is the answer, the one who is the Prince of Peace, the one who has come not only to reconcile us to God, but the one who has come to reconcile us to one another, that we might love one another, that we might forgive one another, that we might live in harmony, the one who has torn down the wall of division. We know the one who is the hope of the world. The only answer is Jesus. You tell me, is there not a door wide open before us? An open door of opportunity to proclaim the hope and the joy that is found in Christ. What will it look for you and for me to walk through that open door? I want to challenge you. I want to challenge us that one thing we will do is that we will commit ourselves to be men and women, young and old, who pray. 
that we would pray regularly for the lost people in your sphere of influence, in your family, in your neighborhood, in your school, in your place of work, that there would be people that, that you would say, God, show me who you want me to just lift up before you regularly in prayer, that we would pray and pray and pray that God would open their eyes, that, that God would open our lips, that God would lead us to love and to reach out and to care for and live as his missionary people, not fearful but with courage, knowing that we are secure, knowing that they need the hope that we proclaim, the hope that we have encountered in Jesus. My hope, my hope is that when we have our prayer summit, once each month, that this place would not have just four or five or six people, but that it would be filled and that we would gather together as a church and say, Lord, this hour we give to you to cry out for the salvation of the lost around us. That's my hope as your pastor, that that, that would become a time where no one wants to miss because we want to gather and cry out to God that he would, he would demonstrate his power through us and draw many into his kingdom. What would it look like for us to walk through this open door that Jesus has placed before us? In verse 12 we read, The one who is victorious I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new new name. There's a lot packed in here, and I, I don't have long, I'm not going to go into all of it, but two things I want to highlight. First is this. Jesus, Jesus is going to label us. Jesus is going to write God's name on us. He's going to write the name of the city of his God on us. He's going to write his new name on us. He's going to label us. Any of you, certainly with kids, you, you know about labeling things. We're going to have names all over us, and, and that shows what? It shows belonging, that we belong to him. That's his promise. We belong to him, and I'm going to write all over you. I'm going to label you. And secondly, he says, never again will they leave it. That is, it will come into his temple, in his new city, in the new Jerusalem, and never will they leave it. And that's significant for these believers who live in Philadelphia, who every time the ground starts to shake, they run out of the city. He says, never will they leave it. There is a place, a city, that is secure, and you will never leave it. It is a marvelous promise of the glory that awaits. Jesus has placed before us an open door. The open door of salvation that, that all who come to Him and put their faith in Him, who repent and believe in Him, will receive life, will be born again. If you are here this morning, if you are joining us online, and you have never walked through that open door, that can happen today. Being a follower of Jesus is not about getting everything cleaned up on your own. No, it's coming like you are and repenting of your sin and turning to Jesus and putting your faith in Him. See, I have placed before you an open door, the door of salvation, an open door of the eschatological kingdom, the new Jerusalem. Jesus promises us that we will have entrance into His kingdom. Jesus said to His disciples, My Father's house has many rooms. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. There is security. We can have confidence that one day we will enter into that door, into His glorious kingdom and in the new Jerusalem. Some of you know that Tim Keller, pastor, writer, scholar, this week announced that he was just diagnosed a few weeks ago with pancreatic cancer. 
And in his update to the world, one of the things he said, if you feel led to pray for me and Kathy, his wife Kathy, one of the things he asked for us to pray was this, for Kathy and me that we use this opportunity to be weaned from the joys of this world and to desire God's presence above all. One day, we, through Christ, will walk through that open door into the new Jerusalem into his glorious presence. I love that, that God would wean us from the joys of this world, that we would desire his presence above all. And an open door of opportunity to proclaim the good news, to live as his missionary people in a world that is lost and desperately in need of the hope that is found in Jesus. And that open door has nothing to do with our strength, nothing to do with our size as a church, nothing to do with our greatness. No, we can come with little strength. It's His power at work in us and through us because His Spirit indwells us. There's only one command, one imperative in this letter. See, look, behold. I have placed before you an open door. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen.